30 to 5 upstairs. And uh, we're starting a new theme this month. And um, thanks to Suki, who mm-hmm. made the suggestion, excellent suggestion. And uh, it's called Impermanence in a Nutshell. Uh, where, <laughs> does, where does one abide? And so we uh, are very thrilled to have you, Machine. Thank you. Uh, and uh, she is a Buddhist teacher. Machine is a Buddhist teacher, um, a writer, mother, diversity consultant. Uh, she leads uh, meditation retreats nationally uh, for people of color and women and uh, social justice activists. Mm-hmm. And you are a core teacher and uh, leadership sangha member at East Bay Meditation Center in Oakland. And one of our uh, speakers, John Nifsud, he's been here for quite a few times. He's also affiliated with the same uh, center. And uh, let's see what else. I think you're you're a very busy woman. I know that. I am pretty busy, but that's uh, pretty good. Pretty good. And you've you've been practicing since 1982? Yes, my gosh. And uh, we are really happy to... So feel free to add anything we haven't covered. (laughs) And uh, you can sort of start at any time you'd like. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much. Thank you for inviting me. And thank you for your practice. That's actually uh, what's most important. That will continue. And also thank you for uh, your intention to gather together in spiritual community. As many of you know, uh, it said that there are three treasures in our practice, also called three jewels or the triple gem. And... Uh, those three jewels that we like to polish and keep brightly shining in our practice are the Buddha, uh, so teachers of compassion and wisdom, the Dharma, uh, which are the teachings in this case of, of Shakyamuni Buddha and the commentaries and body of teachings that have followed that, and the third jewel, which uh, really may be one of the most important of all, because when we learn collectively, it increases our learning exponentially uh, from what we can learn on our own. And that third jewel is Sangha, or spiritual community. Now originally it meant, at the time of the Buddha, Sangha meant monastics, monks and nuns. And we live in a predominantly lay society, so it's now uh, always envisioned as the fourfold Sangha, uh, which means monastics and uh, laypersons, and would also uh, traditionally, even then, we're beginning to evolve because the fourfold sangha, as defined by teachers like Thich Nhat Hanh, are monks, nuns, uh, lay women, lay men, and we can also include uh, widen it to include people of all genders, and uh, get out of that binary identification. So uh, I was very excited by the theme of the month. It's quite a wonderful theme and very much in fitting. Actually, my own training was in Zen and in uh, my original lineage was Korean Zen. 
And then, I, of course, I had exposure to uh, the Japanese Soto and Rinzai lineages, uh, of which this center is is a part of the Soto lineage. I actually knew Isan in the uh-huh. old days, so I have some real memories of being down here. I was down here when he transmitted his Dharma to his uh, my friend Steve Allen about three days, I think, before his death. And before that, when he started the hospice, I would visit. My son was a baby and we used to kind of pop over. And uh, then when Isan died, uh, I came and, as was the custom, uh, people sat in meditation with his body in his bedroom upstairs for three days. And so I brought my son, who was a baby at that time, and we sat next to him and we said goodbye. And uh, now my kid's 22 years old. So that shows me how much time has passed. Uh, and, and it's wonderful to see the practice going on here. Okay, so impermanence in a nutshell. Where does one abide? Where does one abide? So I like to do what I call uh, little thought experiments, which are kind of playing around with my brain. And because uh, it's like really inexpensive and you can just do it whenever you want. <laughs> so I'm going to invite you to try a little thought experiment, um, which will connect to, to our theme. So what I'd like to ask you to do, and you don't have to, this is just, this is just for kind of for fun, is to think of uh, two or three uh, things to which you have some kind of minor attachment. Now, that's because we're doing this thought experiment and it could get like pretty heavy duty, but we wanted we wanted to just do a little experiment here. So, just think of two or three things to which you have minor attachment. So, obviously not people who are close to you or parts of your body or anything like that. Uh, but maybe uh, <laughs> you know your favorite coffee mug or uh, you know, something that um, uh, if uh, it got broken or someone came in and took it or something, you might feel that kind of clutching feeling of, oh, no, my favorite coffee cup is, is gone. Um, so two or three are maybe your favorite food or I guess um, it's kind of like in the sound of music. These are a few of my favorite things. <laughs> so think of it in terms of that and just, I'd like you to just try to really uh, summon up in your imagination these two or three things to which you have some minor attachment. Now, of these two or three things, I invite you to choose one just silently to yourself. And remembering, again, this is something kind of uh, low on the scale of attachment in the overall thing. But there is a reason why you would uh, choose it. It is your, uh, something that you're, you're fond of and that you are uh, even just kind of a little bit attached to. I'm kind of attached to this watch. I realize it's really old. My yoga teacher gave it to me when I was, uh, I was pregnant and I took this yoga class and I just hung in there for months doing yoga and I was so poor at the time because I had just come out of this period of being a monastic 
under a vow of poverty. And, you know, the whole thing about a vow of poverty, it is not fooling around. When you are under a vow of poverty, I didn't have any savings or anything, so I didn't have a watch. So my yoga class took up a um, collection, and the yoga teacher, Greta, bought me this watch, which I'm still using. So uh, the watch band has worn out many times, but um, the watch is really a good one, and so I'm kind of attached to it. So maybe I'll think of that. Okay. So, you got it? Does everyone have it? Looks like this year one thing that you're going to try this little thought experiment with. All right. So, so you're thinking of your of this thing that you're att- attached a little bit to, and now, just experimentally, try thinking to yourself. One day, I got up and I completely let go of, and then fill in the blank with the thing that you chose. So one day I got up and I completely let go of, you notice I'm not saying threw away, destroyed, or anything like that. One day I just completely let go of my watch that my yoga teacher gave me. So I'm not going to ask you, and you can ask, uh, this talk is being recorded, uh, you can ask for the recording to be uh, shut off or not. i just like to ask if anyone would be so generous and courageous as to share something of what your thoughts or feelings might have been uh, when you had this thought. One day I got up and I completely let go of whatever your thing was. Yeah. Well, I'm bringing this up and it was sort of like I just thought of it. Um, And it was um, a rice cooker. that my grandmother gave me in... Your grandma uh, gave you a rice yeah, cooker? Yeah, a, a rice cooker back when I fir- got my first apartment or something. Oh. It was like a housewarming. Oh my God. And I even remember walking her up the three flights of steps and bringing this rice cooker. So it was... I actually just let go of it. So I know... But I mean, I, I would use that rice cooker and would scrub it, you know, like for an hour when I could have gotten, you know, <laughs> probably a better rice cooker... Is really attached to it. It had sentimental value, but then actually a couple of weeks ago, it it was really just interesting how I just said goodbye, and I did let go of it, and uh, it was kind of interesting how I knew it was time, <laughs> I suppose. But anyway, that was what came up for me. Oh well. I'm Japanese American, so those rice cookers are really important. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I do you remember the old days when you made rice in these right, pots right. and they always kind of burn? But it was already like whatever filament you know was starting to like wear off and probably go into the food, and you know, I would still use it. But okay, so you let right. go of your rice cookers. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, so you actually did that. You didn't yeah, think about did. it. Yeah, I actually did. I didn't think about it. Okay. This one day I knew that it was time. Goodbye. Okay, someone else. Yeah. Well, I had a hard time thinking something minor. 
Like it's like the minor things really didn't have, I don't really have an attachment to them. So it didn't seem like it was a good one to pick because it didn't matter. And then the other things I was like, not willing to think about giving up. Okay, that's thank minor. you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a really... The closest I could come to just saying now is I have a collection of Christmas cups mm-hmm. that, I, that I rarely use. So, so maybe I'm a little bit attached to those and I would miss them, but I could give them up. Okay, okay. Yeah. And uh, what do you think that little bit of attachment would feel like if you gave them up? I would miss them at Christmas. I don't want to use them at Christmas. I kind of like seeing them up on the shelf. And I like knowing that I'm going to take them out. I like the ritual of it, mm-hmm. using them at Christmas. Yeah, so you'd miss them once a year yeah. at Christmas, so you'd think of those. I know you'd miss seeing them up on the shelf. Yeah. yeah. Waiting there for Christmas. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> The other days of yeah. the year. <laughs> yeah, like, oh, please <laughs> oh, Thank you. Mm-hmm. Someone else? Yes. All I could think of was the many years that I moved to San Francisco and went to the apartment where I've been living there for many, many years. During all these major changes, and maybe over the last year or two years maybe, I realize things have changed so much, and obviously I'm much older now, that um, most of it I wouldn't want to keep at all. But yet I'm still living there. And so I'm just curious about that. As I get older, I'm wondering why do I want to stay here? Well, I couldn't imagine going anyplace else, you know. It's just that feeling mm-hmm. about all that stuff that was so important years ago, but right now it doesn't mean much. Mm. Mm-hmm. And yet there's, you're saying there's still a kind of an inertia or uh, like, well, I'll just stay here. Well, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, because I couldn't imagine moving after all these years. <laughs> I see. <laughs> Habits are very strong. Yeah. Yeah, I'm exactly the way you are. I hate moving. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you have all your stuff, and probably each thing kind of has its place, and you yeah. know where everything is. And if you moved, all that would have to change. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so when you thought of one morning I woke up and I completely let go of this place I've been living for so long. Did you have a feeling or a thought? Um, well, I think it would be good. Hmm. Okay, it the thought is it would be good. Because all this thing was talking about the past. Mm-hmm. So this is, would be saying, right now I perhaps do feel very differently. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it would be a good change. Oh, yeah. Okay. All right. Well, that's an interesting observation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I sometimes think that, too. <laughs> and then I think, oh, I don't want to move. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, maybe one more. Does someone else have something? This may be silly, but I love pizza. That's not silly. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> I mean, to me, it's one of the four food groups. <laughs> I have stock in Amy's Pizza. What's your my, favorite kind? Oh, the veggie. 
Okay. Yeah. Amy's good. veggie. Yeah, Amy's Amy's veggie pizza, Larocco pizza, you know, just an an ex extreme pizza, you know, for a real treat. They have great pizza, but I thought to myself, this is really silly, but I enjoy pizza. Mm -hmm. I, and yeah, there's and no judgment I here. Yeah. <laughs> that would be sad if yeah. I could never have pizza again. Why are you apologizing? Exactly. We're all with you. <laughs> I mean, I was thinking about things, and then I thought, no, this pizza is even more abiding yeah. than mm -hmm. things. It's pizza is it's a concept. It's it's like I probably have pizza four times a week, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> it's quick and it's yummy, and I can put tomatoes yeah, on. You really do. Yeah, I know. It is your major food group. Yeah, it is. Yeah, well, it you is. know, it's not silly because part of the monastic training I did was in South Korea. And that was in 1987-88. And there was, I think Pizza Hut had just come into Seoul, but <laughs> I never ate there. And, um, yeah, salad, uh, green salad and pizza mm -hmm. were the things I fantasized about. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I thought that, that would be sad if I could never have pizza again. Yeah, which does happen to some people, well, of course, you know, even if, if it's I available. Have, I want that martinis. <laughs> <laughs> this is something that's a little hard to let go of. comes because of just, it's, it's our habit. We've got a routine uh, around it. And it also, uh, impermanence can be observed as something that it's time. There can be just a natural falling away uh, of something that we put a quite a bit of effort into. Maybe even a little bit unnecessarily, but still, uh, it was from Grandma uh, over all those, all those years uh, because probably there was some association or connection with someone who was, who was dear. Mm -hmm. So there are all of these aspects and many more of what we call impermanence. And with this thought experiment, we've done a little test drive of a tiny part of impermanence in a nutshell. And yet we can see how rich the themes are and the deep material that, that comes up when we share in this way. Um, because to me, uh, and we can also see that what is called impermanence that becomes so much the topic of uh, Buddhist study, of meditational inquiry, is almost always, not always, but I would say really almost always, where people begin to feel some um, agony begin to go into it ever more deeply is actually only one part of what impermanence actually is and that's the part where uh, we begin to fear we begin to think about which is not an unreasonable thing at all because as human beings we do plan we do uh, we do live our lives in such a way that we're, we're conscious of things that are probably going to happen or even certainly will happen or even might happen, uh, but the probability is low, all that whole range of things. 
uh, that usually the topic of impermanence has to do with losing something that's very, very dear to us. So in other words, it's the topic of impermanence is usually conceived of as when we boil it down to, it usually is fear of death in one form or another. It is usually fear of irrevocable loss. It is usually fear of some kind of change which we really have very minimal control over that, um, that just affects us very deeply and which uh, brings out all kinds of the really classic spiritual questions that have probably given rise to every faith and every spiritual tradition in the world for as long as human beings have been around. Uh, Who am I? What is my purpose here? Uh, What happens when I die? What happens to people I know and beings that I'm fond of or that I need when when they leave my sphere or or die. Uh, all of these all of these questions arise when we contemplate impermanence. And that of course leads to uh, to the second part of the theme, which is where does one abide? Because when we Typically, for most human beings, myself included, when I contemplate in this way, and I think, well, holy cow, you know, I just have so little control over any of these, of these things. I like my life to be in control, but in fact, uh, my house over in Oakland is sort of almost directly on top of the Hayward Fault. So if I think I have any control, uh, no, that is just such an illusion. And I remind myself of that often, not to freak myself out, but just as a little, you know, just kind of as a little reminder. The scientists say the big one is coming, and I have my little knapsack and some water and stuff, which I I need to put fresh water in. So I do think about those things from from time to time. I've kind of reasonably planned, I think. Uh, And I also know that whenever I get really fixated in and I can feel uh, my vision kind of tunneling down to the things that I think about as my problems, my issues. Of course, there are always annoying people, which I always love to talk about in Dharma Talks, because mm-hmm. you know, they're a major drawback of being together in community, are annoying and wrong-headed people. Uh, and uh, you know, and sickness, and getting old, and and uh, not being able to get the kind of pizza we want, and uh, all of these things. Uh, then, then there is that feeling of just it kind of sliding or skidding out of control. Uh, and the question does arise: Well, you know, if I can't control any of this and I can't hang on to it. Where does one abide? Abide is a kind of an old-fashioned word. It refers to reside. Uh, You abide in your abode. Mm -hmm. And your abode is your home, is your refuge, is your safe and comfortable uh, place. You you are in your abode. And as some of you who have studied some Dharma know, uh, the, we study and practice what are called the four Brahma Viharas. 
uh, and that translates as the divine abode. So Vahara is a dwelling place, like where uh, Theravada monks live. That's called a Vahara. And Brahma is, is the god Brahma, so that's the divine part of it. So the Brahman Vaharas are the divine abodes. And in our practice, they're considered to be the places where we can truly abide. Because any house, any facility, you know, any place, it's really subject to change, right? It could, it could fall down. Something could happen. Uh, or uh, the owner could say, well, I've sold this and now I'm going to turn it into uh, a gymnasium or something like that. Uh, it's all subject to change. So in this practice and in the teachings of the Buddha, it said that we can always abide in the four Brahma Viharas. They're all, also called the limitless abodes. And those are um, uh, compassion, uh, karuna, and mudita, which is joy or sympathetic joy. You know, even if we ourselves are not joyous and we see someone else who's got a smile on their face or uh, is experiencing some little or big kind of happiness, we can experience sympathetic joy, joy for their joy. There's always some of it around, even a tiny bit. Uh, and um, uh, we used to have a cat, and she would just sometimes be asleep with this giant grin on her face. <laughs> so we just got so much mudita out of her. She just kind of soak it up. And then there, uh, then there is metta, often translated as loving kindness. I prefer universal friendship. Uh, so it, it has that quality of, of, of real affection and uh, acceptance. Uh, it's very spacious, right? And the fourth Brahma Vihara is Upeksha, or Upeka, which means equanimity. And that is the quality of being able to just hold all of the other ones uh, in a very equal and fair-minded way and say sometimes we win, sometimes we lose, uh, sometimes there are good days, sometimes there are bad days, and I'm old enough to know this. So if I'm having a bad day and I just kind of hang in there, chances are, due to the law of impermanence, I'm going to have a good day at some point. <laughs> right? It goes both ways. That's the thing to remember about impermanence in a nutshell. It's not just one way. It's not just like, oh, I've got this good thing, and oh, no, 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 now it's gone, it's gone, the pizza is eaten, or, you know, uh, now I have to leave my place. It, it also always goes continually in the other direction. That's really uh, what we need to keep in mind in terms of impermanence and where does one abide. So um, uh, uh, we can even think impermanence, really, what could, what could be better? Like, you know, I'm here I am, I'm hanging out in the BART station and I'm really bored and it's cold and hey, due to impermanence, the BART train has just pulled in. <laughs> <laughs> or, uh, you know, for those of you who have been around little children, the terrible twos are nothing to joke about. I mean, kids just, most of them, I mean, you just want to rip their necks and that's really appropriate. I mean, just, whatever you say, it's like, you know, would you like ice cream? No. You know, you want to go to the park? No. Everything is no, because they're trying it out. They're trying to test the limits of no. 
And just as you're getting ready, you know, there's some drastic act will come about. <laughs> Due to impermanence, they hit three, and most of them are going to hit that developmental mark where suddenly around three o'clock they become just like these socialized, equanimous, individuated, very civilized human beings. <laughs> and that you know, goes on until the four and a half when it's really bad again, and five when it usually gets a little better. So that's all impermanence. And mostly we fixate on impermanence as various catastrophes which is what I call the Godzilla factor of, <laughs> of life. And uh, I love Godzilla movies, and I'm a big fan of Godzilla. So if you've ever seen Godzilla movies, you know that usually, I think, in most of them, there's like this kind of uh, a pattern where it's like Tokyo Bay or the water around Japan, and everything's fine. People are going about their everyday lives, and... Uh, you know, they're the usual kind of little things, and the water is very placid. And then something happens, and just totally uncontrollably, out of the depths, Godzilla, Godzilla arises, just rears up on the water, like screeching and primal and scaly and fire-breathing, and, and, and then wreaks havoc on Japan. So... Um, you know, I'm very prone to catastrophic thinking, and I'm always thinking. <laughs> so it's that fear of uh, catastrophic change and and things getting ruined and messed up, uh, causing that contraction, that clutching feeling inside, anxiety, uh, fear, wanting to hang on to what we think we have. Um. So. So our question, or we could say our koan for this month, is uh, taking into account all of this, where does one abide? And usually for most people, uh, we, don't, we don't care anything about this theoretical one. We care about ourselves, and why not? So we can make it personal. Where do I abide? Um, and this is where the meditation we do can be so enormously helpful. Not to everyone, because not everyone is inclined to meditation. Some people might do it through, uh, through contemplative inquiry, where they're not formally sitting in meditation, but they might have their journal or be sitting in a quiet way and just kind of calmly, more or less, contemplating. Or, or in some other manner. But for those of us inclined to meditation, we're all here, we've meditated, this is something that um, can, really, can really help us. Because for those of us, uh, for really anyone who's done any amount of sitting meditation in silence the way that we have uh, just done it, or it, it doesn't even need to be a long time. Sometimes you can have this experience in a pretty short time, but usually kind of over the long haul. We know that in sitting meditation, really everything arises. There's going to be little moments of happiness. There's going to be anxiety, plenty of boredom, uh, sadness. There might be fear. There certainly might be thoughts arising like when will Albert ring the bell um, and uh, all these things you know my left toe itches 
uh, as well as thoughts about the past, maybe longing for the past, regrets for the past, and thoughts about the future, longing for those tea and cookies, which we'll get to, or uh, fears of what might be to, to come. So all of these things arise, because that's what our brain does, that's what we do as human uh, beings, and that can produce a lot of inner agitation. And once again, so we look at our question of where, where do I abide? Where can I abide? And although it seems simplistic, uh, at least I do, it can be even kind of infuriating. I, I think this is actually a process that we all need to go through in our own way in order to discover it for ourselves. And, and there have also been many people, myself included, who have discovered in this form of sitting meditation that we're doing that actually just the simple, cultivating the simple awareness with just like this very simple kind of heart being willing to put down all our complicated thinking and our complex feelings and the reason why we're this way and that way. And I love therapy, don't get me wrong. There's really a time and a place for our story. And what we're doing here is of something a little different to complement uh, understanding our story. It's just being aware when we're breathing in, we're breathing in. When we're breathing out, we're aware of breathing out. Breathing in a short breath, we're aware of that. If we're breathing out a long breath, we're aware of that. And that, of course, comes from the Satipatthana Sutta. So it's a form of meditation that goes back 2,600 years and probably even earlier. Because we can see it's so basic. There's no religious dogma in it. Uh, it's something that really probably everyone could do or at least give a try. doesn't require some kind of athletic prowess and you really don't need to do it in any particular posture. The sitting meditation in a chair or on the floor is considered to be helpful because it is simple. That's all. There's nothing magical really about it because we can also do that awareness of breath uh, in all of the postures of the human being, which are considered to be sitting, standing, walking, uh, or movement if we're in a wheelchair or scooter, forward, backward, side to side, lying down. They're all good. Lying down, a little problematic because we tend to hear gentle snoring. So once again, uh, we're going for uh, awakeness and alertness. So, um, we have this as a starting place, and we have this as a refuge, and we have this as a resting place. This awareness, this simple awareness, being able to sit quietly and just be aware without uh, you know, trying to make it or manipulate it, just be aware in the most simple way. Now I'm breathing in. And then we can even take the eye out of it. Now breathing in is happening. Now breathing in. Now breathing out. Now breathing in. Now breathing out. That actually is 
as long as we're alive, because you know life is breath for us human beings. That's the one thing you know. You could be happy, you could be sad, uh, you could be really anything, old or young or tall or short or uh, any ethnicity or race or sexual orientation or gender or come from any region. But we know as a human being, if you are alive, you are breathing. You are breathing in and you are breathing out. That's going to be the anchor in the present moment. That's going to be the starting place and it's going to be our best friend. Because when we cultivate that awareness over time, gently, firmly, bringing the wandering mind, which is natural, back again and again to this kind of home base of this very simple meditation we do, there really is, uh, it's going to be one of the best friends that we have. And I will end with a little story just to tell you something from my experience and uh, then it will uh, be time probably after that for the refuges in closing, but I hope you can join uh, me and I will join you for tea and cookies to ask any questions or tell me your experience. So, my story of I've been doing meditation uh, since 1982, really the end of 1981. But uh, in 1982, I took the beginning meditation course at Zen Buddhist Temple in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And I helped to found that temple, so I am actually very attached to remembering those uh, good times when uh, we were just starting out with just a baby temple. Mm-hmm. And uh, there were lots of hilarious stories, which I hope I could share with you sometime. There's one that involves donuts that I don't have time to do now. Uh, it was a kind of a donut frenzy. Uh, but anyway, I've, I've spent probably the equivalent of several years of my life in the meditation hall because I've done these three-month retreats and uh, that kind of stuff. And uh, so a couple, was it like 2000, 2009, 2009, uh, I had been in Illinois for an entire month. I got a fellowship, which I'd never gotten before, to do some writing at a place called the Ragdale, um, uh, at Ragdale, in, which is an artist's colony uh, or residence. So it was so great, and I went off and I just wrote and wrote for a month. And then I came back through Chicago and I visited some of my meditation students, students and I was fine and happy. And then I got on this airplane and I was coming back to Oakland via Denver. And one of my students had wrapped up a bagel for me and I had the New York Times and, you know, it was like the water in Tokyo Bay, right? Everything was pretty darn normal. So we took off and we were getting near Denver. And I just suddenly went from feeling fine to feeling really bad. Like, oh, I do not feel right. So I got up and I tried to go to the bathroom. And there were these two rows of bathrooms facing one another. And I remember that um, I got worse and worse and I was trying to, it's a good thing I didn't get in there because then I would have collapsed and who knows how long it would have been until they found me, especially it was locked on the inside. But anyway, I was starting to sort of black out. And what it was is my blood pressure went down. It was actually just fainting. It was nothing even that serious, I found out later. But I remember 
because I meditated for so long <laughs> that um, that I was feeling sick, and I suddenly the thought came to me, you know what? I don't even know how to open this bathroom door, and I used to be able to do it because I was just fumbling around. And then the thought came through my mind, this is not good. <laughs> and then I kind of leaned forward and I remember registering the feeling of my forehead against the metal door and registering, ah, a sensation of cold. And then I blacked out completely. Uh, so you can see, actually, how when we use our mindfulness, we can really track things pretty quickly and pretty precisely. So I passed out, and when I, when I came to shortly... There was a man, uh, who, a poor man, came around and he was asking for help. And, uh, and I took a quick kind of survey of my situation. And I was lying on the carpet and I was actually sort of fine for the moment. And the help was coming. And so I sort of reassured myself that that was all in place. And then just instantly, I began to practice or it came about that I was aware of breathing in, I was aware of breathing out. And I just began meditating. And as I did this, someone came and helped me, and we landed in Denver, and paramedics came on and trundled me off. And, uh, and I just actually was grateful. I was calm. I could see that everything was as it should be. And... I was able to abide in the awareness of breathing in those moments in that situation. Everything was surprisingly okay. <laughs> so I'll leave you with that, with um, deep thanks for your invitation and for your gracious attention. Thank you so much, Machine. Uh, seeing as we have a couple minutes before we close, could you state for us in your own words what the law of impermanence is, sort of in a nutshell, from your perspective? The law. Of the law of impermanence. What it means to you? Oh, the Buddha said it. Everything changes. All right. That's it. Nutshell. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.